Everybody, glad uh, again, I'm glad you're here to be a part of this class this evening. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 30, right at the end of 1 Samuel. So you might join me there. I would appreciate it very much. Have next, yeah, I should have mentioned this tonight. I'm sure you, you already, we announced it on Sunday. But next week, we won't have this class on Wednesday night. We will meet on Tuesday night because of Thanksgiving, and we'll have a Thanksgiving-themed service where we sing and pray and and um, just think about reading scripture, about being gra- grateful for all God's done for us. So that'll be next week on Tuesday night. We'll have a service here on Wednesday night. And so our class obviously won't meet next week, which gives us one more week in this quarter, the following week, and we'll finish up this study. So somebody texted me a little bit ago, and they said, you know, I was looking at the, car- I was looking at the announcement sheet, and it said the title of your class is Looking for a King. And he said... This person said, you've been in that class for a long time. Haven't you found him yet? So I'm not going to tell you who it was, uh, Joel Abbott, but it was uh, somebody here. Joel's not in here, so he was giving me a hard time. He's doing Bible Bowl tonight, but he said, haven't you, haven't you found him yet? <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. That was pretty clever. I said, I responded to Joel, and I said, well, he's pretty elusive. You know, we've been chasing him for a while. So... That's what we're doing in this class is we're, we're chasing the king, I guess, in a way. We're, we're studying this story that was told a long time ago about the founding of the kingdom of Judah and Israel and God's dealings with his people a long time ago. And 1 Samuel tells a story, but uh, we, we're, we're not going to go into 2 Samuel, so we don't get to... If we're talking about looking for a king, the King David, we don't actually get to that. I mean, next, or two weeks from tonight, we'll cover the last chapter and try to have a little bit of time to reflect on what we've been thinking about for the last few months. But we don't actually get to David being king, not officially, not, not really. I mean, he, he becomes king when Saul dies, and Saul is going to die at the end of the story in chapter 31. But we did get to the founding of the kingdom. And this transitional period from this time of the judges, which was kind of a chaotic time of 400 years or so when the people didn't really want to follow God and didn't follow God, and they just cried out to him when they needed him, and the rest of the time they sort of abandoned their convictions. But, and then they cried out for a king, and Saul was the first king. And so we've studied that story in 1 Samuel. But this is a story about what God is doing, and that's pretty important to recognize, and I'll point that out again to you as we go through this chapter tonight, chapter 30 together. What is God doing? What is God doing in the face of rebellion? What is God doing in the face of of humanity's flaws and people don't do what they ought to do? And even David here is a man who's flawed, and he's a man who's called earlier in his life. He was a man after God's own heart. So we're in this part of the story where David has been running from King Saul, scholars believe anywhere from 10, maybe as long as 15 years. The Bible doesn't always give these chronological markers to let us know how, how long things are happening. But based on putting some different things together, you can kind of come to the conclusion that, that David's been running for 10 years at least, and maybe as long as 15 years. That's a long time. I, didn't, I, I found that today, and I, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that. I, I don't know. When you read these chapters, you kind of get the sense that, well, you're talking about a few months maybe, maybe, maybe a year. No, this has been a decade where David's been on the run. You can imagine how frustrated he's getting. And maybe that helps us to understand what we read a week or two ago at the beginning of chapter 20, 28, was it? 
where he says, you know, Saul's going to kill me. Saul's going to kill me. I'm going to die at his hands. I've got to do something drastic. And he says, I'm going to go to the land of Philistia because I'll be safe there. So David's been doing this for a while. I guess he's getting tired, as you might expect. If you do this for a month or two, that's bad enough. You do it for a decade, it's pretty rough. So he goes to Philistia. This is going to become important tonight. Two main enemies of Israel during this time. They had others. There are lots of small Canaanite tribes, Canaanite bands of warriors, soldiers, these little, not really a nation, but these groups of people. But there were two during this era who were perpetual enemies of Israel, and they were the Amalekites and the Philistines. Those are two. There were others, of course. These are, these are two main ones. Because of what happens tonight, this is interesting. David's going to go and make war against the Amalekites because of something that happens here. But because of what happens tonight, the Amalekites are no longer enemies of Israel for at least about 300 years. They still exist, but what happens here is such a big deal, apparently, that for 300 years, the Amalekites are no longer really a threat to Israel. So I found that kind of interesting as well. Anyway, so you got two main enemies. Amalekites and Philistia. This, is, this matters because you remember a few chapters back, in fact, we, I guess we, maybe we covered this before the summer series began, so this could be back in May. So I'm really asking you to go back a long way in your memories to when we talked about the Amalekites and how Saul was ordered by God to go and attack them. Remember that story, Agag, and the whole, whole deal back in chapter 15? And he didn't do it. I mean, he attacked them, but he didn't, he didn't do it in the way God asked him to do it. God told him to do it. And as a result of that, this was one of, of two outright acts of rebellion by Saul. God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, the Amalekites. You need to remember that because of what happens tonight. So David's on the run. He's had opportunities to kill Saul, but he hasn't been willing to do it. I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the anointed one of God. I'm not going to do it. And so David has run. He's fled to the Philistines. And he's been living there for, what was it, 16 months, a year and four months, I think, he's been there. And he gets himself into a tough spot. I mean, things go well for a while. This matters, so I don't want to spend too much time reviewing, but this matters to what we're studying tonight. You need to make sure you remember that David went to Philistia. They're enemies of Israel. But the king of Gath, Achish, believes that David is needs to get away from Saul, and he trusts him. And what David does is, he says, let me live somewhere else in Philistia. And he gives him this city, Ziklag, and, and he gives him this area. So David settles there. And then David makes these raids into the borders of Israel, the borders of Judah. He makes these raids. He comes back and he tells King Achish, I'm attacking Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm raiding Israel. But he's not. He's raiding the enemies of Israel, the Gersherites and some other ites up there. He's raiding the enemies of Israel and coming back home and telling Achish, yeah, I'm attacking Israel. Well, what would that do with the king of Philistia? It would make him think, oh, yeah, David's really on our side. Because if he's attacking his own people, then he's made himself a stench. That's the Bible word there, a stench to his own people. So I know he's with us. But then the moment of testing comes when Philistia and Israel are coming against one another in battle. They're about to. And so Achish says, all right, David, you're coming with me. They're, 
their group would have been the rear guard. You're coming with me. And David says, all right, I'm with you. So they're getting ready to go to battle. Some of the other Philistine commanders, they come and they say, why are these Israelites in the procession here? What are they, what are they doing here? And Achish says, they're with us. I, I trust him completely. I, I trust him completely. And the other commanders say, absolutely not. We don't trust them. They'll turn against us in battle. Send them back. And that moment, as we talked about last week, was crucial for David because had he gone into this battle fighting with Philistia against Israel, think about how that would have affected his desire and his place to be the next king of Israel. If he had attacked, been, been a part of the attack against Israel, in which, you know what's going to happen? There's all sorts of, sorts of foreshadowing. It's already been predicted, spelled out. What's going to happen in that battle with Philistia? What's going to happen to Saul? What's going to happen to Saul's three sons? They're going to die. So what if David is in this battle in which Saul and his sons die? Now, if you go into 2 Samuel, if you keep reading, and I hope you will, because this story is fascinating, but if you go into 2 Samuel, what happens there is it takes David a long time to win over all of Israel. Because you may remember, um, he, he at first is, becomes king, but he becomes king in Hebron, and he's king over Judah, which is you know, a big tribe, an important tribe, but it's not all. There, there are 12 tribes. So he becomes king over Judah and, and Benjamin, usually with, with, with Judah. But he's over this small area. The rest is, is loyal to this Saul, it's called the Saulite dynasty. The rest is committed to trying to perpetuate this dynasty of Saul. It takes David a long time to win over the entire country. Now imagine how that story would have gone if David had been in this battle against Israel and Judah. It was hard enough. It took him years to win over the entire nation. Imagine what it would have been like if he had been in this battle. You know, tracking with me? Would have been a big deal politically. Would have been hard. David didn't know how to get out of it, though, because he's been, he's been playing both sides of this deal, and he's in a, in a pickle, but God gets him out. So that was the story from last week about um, the commanders come along and say, we're not taking him in. And so David, I think, is... He's riding off on his horse, breathing a sigh of relief. Like, I think David is, is riding away from that thinking, man, I almost got myself in a mess because I didn't want to go to that battle, but I didn't know how to get out of it because I've been lying and all this stuff. What happens? Well, God is working. Even with David's not as he ought to be, God is faithful even when we're not. Which is a Bible verse in the New Testament. So that's what's going on here. And David and his men are riding off and breathing sighs of relief. We didn't want to go to that battle anyway. And that's where we are in chapter 30. Okay? And that was a lot of explaining, but it's important to see what's going on with our chapter here. Okay. Let's walk through this chapter together and, and we'll talk about what it means to us. But this, we'll do this paragraph by paragraph and think about it. Now, when David, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. All right. So they're, they're told, go back home. Ziklag's home. So go, so go back. They did. When they got home on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. The Negev is the southern part. And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, what we've been reading in the last few chapters is the story is told in a way that makes it obvious that the narrator of the story wants us to compare Saul, who's reigning as king, unfaithfully, and David, who's been appointed to be the next king, and the way David lives. The, the contrasts are all over the place, and I'll try to point those out as we go through this story. But this is set up. I mean, this is set up for us. What, when was the kingdom taken away from Saul? I mean, when was it prophesied that it would be taken away? Amalek. All right? Saul did not do what he was supposed to do in reference to the Amalekites. So we've got them again. They haven't gone away. They haven't gone away because Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. This wouldn't be an issue here if Saul had done what he was supposed to do back in chapter 15. But he didn't do it because he wasn't faithful, because he didn't listen to God. What happened in, in the previous chapter? Remember we talked about this, I guess it was two weeks ago. Saul didn't have any, Saul didn't have any, any counsel here. He didn't have any priest. He didn't have a prophet. God had turned his back on him. He couldn't seek the counsel of God. So what does he do? He goes to a witch. You see, Saul, in contrast to David here, in fact, I think that's why we've got this last verse in that paragraph we just read. David strengthened himself. Where? In the Lord is God. What happens when you strengthen yourself in the Lord your God? God takes care of you. Even when your commitment to that God, to, to God himself, is not, doesn't manifest itself always consistently. I threw out a question near, near the end of last week. I think it was last week. The question was, why, does, why is God so patient with David and he rejects Saul? I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that, but I think part of the answer is here. David, I don't think he ever should have gone to Philistia. I think that indicated... A lack of trust that God would protect him in Israel because he got himself in a bad spot there. God got him out of it. I don't think he should have gone there. I think it displayed David not fully trusting in God. But God preserves him there. Why? Because David, in his heart, he never lost his commitment, even if weak at times, he never lost his commitment that God was God. and He was going to try to serve God. And I think that's the difference with you and me God will be patient with us for a long way. And I, I'm thankful for that because everybody in this room needs the patience of God. Because you and I have engaged in things and, and our faith isn't what it ought to be all the time. And we do things we shouldn't do. We, our priorities aren't what they ought to be. But God is patient with us as long as we don't turn our backs on Him in rebellion and defiance of Him and say, I'm going to do this my way. That's what Saul did. That's the difference, I think, between Saul and David. David commits the sin of Bathsheba. David does the whole numbering deal at the end of 2 Samuel where he lost faith in God again in some sense. But God was patient with him. Never took the throne away from him. Because David didn't abandon God. He was fallible and weak. But God's patient with the fallible and weak. He's not patient with the outright rebellious. That's what Saul did.
So as the story goes on, you know, again, I think David is, is walking away from that encounter with the Philistines and he's breathing a sigh of relief. He's excited to get to go back home. He doesn't have to fight in the battle. He doesn't have to, and he didn't, he didn't have to do anything to get out of the battle. Like the only way he could have gotten out of it was saying to, to the king, look, I don't, I can't really fight against my own people. And then the whole ruse would have been, you know, would have been discovered. So he, that's the only way out of it. Most scholars think, well, I say most, I think some scholars think David was fully planning on turning on Philistia in this battle. That because of the wording that he uses, that David is, is planning to, when they get into the battle, he's not going to fight against Israel. He's going to turn and, and start fighting against the Philistines. That's what, that's what, it seems to me what most people think David's intentions were, but it's not spelled out, right? But he gets out of it. God gets him out of it. God's name isn't mentioned in that deal, but we know it's God. God's working. And so David goes to Ziklag. He goes home, and they're breathing sighs of relief, and they get there, and they're lives just fall apart because everything that they have and especially their families have been taken. Everything's gone when they get back to Ziklag. So at the end of this paragraph, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In contrast, this is as low as you get, right? This is as low as you get. He's, he's thinking things are going well. He gets back home and, and, and all of their wives and all their kids are gone. All their stuff is gone. He's as low as you can get. Now, do you remember anybody else in 1 Samuel who got really low a couple of chapters ago? He got really low. He got really down. He's, he's, he's at the bottom. That's Saul, of course. And what does Saul do? He goes to a witch. See the contrast here clearly set before us. When you don't have anywhere else to go, where do you go? That's a pretty important question for you and me, and it, and it says something about our hearts. When we don't have anywhere else to go, where do we go? Do we try to solve it and fix it ourselves? Yeah, yeah. what David did here is uh, you, you go to the Lord. That's a sign of someone who is not in rebellion to God. So David may not should have been in Philistia, but he knows the one who is his Lord. And so David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You may remember back when we, we looked at this phrase a few weeks ago when it says this, in, in, uh, the last time David and Jonathan were together when they were talking, and it sa- uses a phrase like this. And, and this phrase has something to do with reminding yourself of the promises of God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How do you do that? You remind yourself God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. does what he says he's going to do. That draws you closer to him. Strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. But, oh yeah, I, I didn't mention the, you know, the, uh, the, the act of rebellion on part of his people. Remember these 600 people who were with David? They weren't like the, the best kind of people. They weren't like the upstanding citizens. They, these were the rabble. These were people who, they had a reason why they weren't in Israel. <laughs> They had a reason why they're out there following this this rebel, you know. And so this this comes, and they their wives and their kids are gone, all their stuff's gone, and they immediately do what's natural in that kind of world, that kind of environment. And they say, "We're going to kill the leader because he shouldn't have let us do that. He shouldn't have happened." So David turned to God again. And these these phrases put here so that we might see, all right, how's God going to solve this? God just fixed this other problem. 
What's God going to do here? So verse 7, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Ahimelech, so one we read about him a few chapters ago, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook, the brook uh, Besor. Now, just a thing or two here, the ephod. You can talk for a lot, long time about the ephod. There are dissertations written about the ephod. And nobody, at the end of the dissertation, they say, we're not sure what the ephod is. So... We don't really know how this works. You can read the dissertation. I didn't read it either, but uh, um, I read about the dissertations, and this is, this is a conclusion of the scholarly research. We don't know what the ephod is, so I'll save you some time there. Had something to do with the breastplate of the high priest, and some way, this is connected to, if you've heard of the Urim and the Thummim, you know, this is connected to that. There's speculation about how this works, but nobody definitively knows. Some way of seeking the will of God in some cases where you just need to know yes or no. Do I go or do I not go? If I go down here, are they going to attack me? And God in some way provides an answer through the ephod, through the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, it's not that you don't know what an ephod is. It, it's connected to the breastplate of the high priest, but it's just not known how all this works, how God provides answer through this. So we just have to take the word for it here that this is somehow God was revealing his will clearly to David. That's the point of this section here. And God says, pursue, for you shall overtake and shall surely rescue. So not all answers were yes and no. There's some way where God would reveal his way more specifically. All right, so they take off. Got these 600 guys with them. And they get to this brook. And a couple hundred of them are too tired. That's going to become relevant a little bit later on. A couple, of them, a couple hundred of them are too tired. They stay back and 400 people go with David. Verse 11, they found an Egyptian. How's, again, the question before us is, what is God going to do? How's God going to fix this? Because the Amalekites are tough people. You don't just... They don't just come in and take everything you got and all your family and just, you, you know, they, they say, you know, we made a mistake. We're going to give them back. It's not the way it works. So what's God going to do? They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. <clears throat> they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake, of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. All right, just a couple of words about this. I think there are a couple of things going on. One is, what, what's God doing? How's God going to save them? Even though it doesn't say God did this, that's the way Old, Old Testament narrative works, is that you see, you're expected to see, God is showing how he fulfills his promise in the Torah. If you are obedient to me, you will be blessed. If you rebel against me and seek, for example, the witch of Endor, you will not be blessed. So we're seeing in narrative form 
the fulfillment of what the law said about obedience and disobedience. So God is working. That's the first question. Also, a second question is, this text is going to be circulated later on in the days of the kings. And one of the things the narrator, the author, is interested in doing is showing how David is a better king than Saul and how David is a man who is a good man and worthy of being king. And so you see elements of compassion coming through here. He finds the Egyptian, you know, you can try the, the Jack Bauer torture them method, or you can try this method. David takes care of him, feeds him, gives him water. It doesn't actually say it, but I think David, no doubt, did what he asked, and that is, no, I'm not going to turn you in when we get there. So David acts compassionately to this guy they find this Egyptian in the open country. So, you know, he's a slave of an Amalekite. He says, just don't, just don't turn me over to them and I'll take you where they are. So verse 16, when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Is he qualified to be king? Again, that question is before you. Is this man qualified? Do people follow him? Is he a leader? Is he going to be able to lead people? If he can lead this bunch, he can lead anybody. That's the idea coming through here. This, they, they are deferring to David. They're, they're, they were trying to rebel against him earlier, but now what are they doing? This is David's spoil. We recognize who's in charge. So is he a good leader? Um, you know, the language, everything the Amalekites had done had been undone here. Nothing was missing, verse 19. So David, verse 21, he came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Okay, so is this man, can he, can he lead? What kind of man is he? What kind of king will he be? These clues are embedded in the narrative and the text here. He shows compassion to the Egyptian. Here, he's put in a position of leadership where they're, again, these difficult-to-lead people, these rabble-rousers are saying, look, they got too tired. We went and got their stuff. They don't deserve it. Give them their wives and kids and be done with them. A test of a leader right there. You're going to do the right thing or are you going to give in to the pressure of the people? And David chooses to act compassionately, just as he had done with the Egyptian. What kind of king is this? What kind of man is this? And so he shows leadership here in the way that he handles the situation with the, the 400 who didn't want to give to the 200. Notice carefully the author puts 
David made this a statute, and it is that way to this day. What kind of man is this? But again, what is God doing here? What is God doing? David recognizes what's going on. David recognizes that this, this didn't come about because they were particularly wise or that their tactic was, was good. David recognized what's going on. He had consulted the ephod earlier. He followed the command of God, or he followed the leading of God, and he went, and uh, everything worked out. But he didn't then say, you know, this is on me. This is what I've done. He said, how can you say that, guys? God is the one who gave us this. This is not ours. This is not ours to do with what we will. God is the one who gave this. We distribute it equally. What kind of king is this? What in the world is God doing? Is God going to act in a way that saves his people? All right, last paragraph here, short one. Verse 30, uh, 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of a spoil to his friends. This is important. It's important politically. He sent part of a spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jetir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakau, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Boration, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This closing paragraph of this story leads us into the next chapter, which we'll cover two weeks from tonight, Lord willing. But again, the contrast here, our, our thinking about what could have happened if God hadn't intervened through his providence. You think about what this last section says. He had been saying he's raiding these people. It's what he'd been telling the king of Gath. And he almost got him into a place where he's attacking Judah and Israel. But through a you know, fortuitous series of events, it's completely turned around. And now not only is he not attacking his own people and destroying his relationship with them politically and in, and in other ways, not only is he not doing that, which would have been disastrous, what is going on? He's sending... He's sending goods to them, you know? That's how God completely turned around this story from where, where it could have gone. Either he attacks Israel or he goes into the battle and he turns his back and he attacks the Philistines or whatever he would have done. You see how God worked this out? And I think that's the way we ought to read this. This is what God is working behind the scenes. He's faithful. He's working things out. And uh, as long as David seeks him, David found strength in the Lord his God. He consulted the ephod. He gave God the credit for doing what he had done. And God worked everything out. I mean, pretty good points of application here. We've got, uh, we've got a couple minutes a couple minutes left to reflect on, on what, we've, what we've learned here. You know, I think, again, I want you to see, I think we're supposed to see the contrast here with Saul because the last time Saul had come in contact with the Amalekites, he had disobeyed God and the kingdom was taken away from him. So David is now doing what Saul was unwilling to do. And as I said at the beginning of class tonight, the Amalekites are going to be a non-factor for 300 years. Now whether or not that's because of what happens here, 
exclusively. I'm sure there were other factors involved in that. Only that, as far as the story is told here, David attacks the Amalekites, and we don't hear from them again for 300 years as far as the biblical record is concerned. Because he does what he's supposed to do. And, and God removes them as a factor. And, and, and certainly that, that was important for Israel to understand because they had not fully driven out and did not fully drive out all these, um, these, these pagan people groups who worshipped idols in all sorts of cruel and awful ways. And they were supposed to drive them out. They didn't do that completely. And they ended up experiencing a number of setbacks along the way. But if you do what God tells you to do, things work out. David consulted God. Saul consulted the witch of Endor. Saul was unwilling to do what God said in reference to the Amalekites. David did what God led him to do with reference to the Amalekites. So what happens when you disobey God? Chapter 31. What happens when you follow the leading of God? Chapter 31 and 2 Samuel, which is where David takes over as king after all these years of running and hiding and living in awful circumstances. But the story is unfolding in a way that completes Deuteronomy in particular, but the Torah, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the law. It, that's what the Old, I said this last week, that's what the Old Testament is. It's the law and it's stories and prophecies about being faithful to the covenant. What happens if you're faithful and what happens if you're unfaithful? It's living examples of, of Torah obedience or disobedience. And so, I think that's it. We've got, typically don't have any time left. You got thoughts? Anybody? We've got just like two minutes left. Anybody got a thought or a question? See, if I opened it up 20 minutes ago, everybody wouldn't have been talking and we wouldn't have got through the material. And then I open it up at the end and nobody says anything. That's all right. Okay, so where we'll go um, next week is, Lord, well, next week we have the Tuesday service and the following week we'll cover the last chapter, fairly short chapter, um, how the story ends as far as the Saulite dynasty is concerned. And then we will take time, Lord willing, to reflect on maybe some overall lessons that we learned from 1 Samuel. All right? I appreciate your, your attention and your thoughts and being a part of the class. Have a good night. Thanks.